Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. So if he can come into a courtroom where he's afraid that somebody may make good on the, on the threats against his life, after everything that he's gone through, some lawyers can take on some cases and, and, and see if they can hold somebody responsible, even if we're not going to make a bunch of money on the case. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry along with Yvonne Godfrey. And uh, Yvonne, it's been a while since we've done this. I know. We we had a plan to do it. And then, well, it's been busy. We had a little bit of a break, Steve. We're going to be better than ever. Fresh. I know. I know. I'm kind of, and, and we haven't done much prep, you know, as, as far as like practicing. So it's like uh, trying to get back on the bicycle and ride again. We did co-chair a seminar together last week, so. That's right. And we had, it was actually a great seminar because we had a number of people who had been guests on the podcast uh, come and speak uh, down here in Savannah and uh, and had yeah. a, a really good time. Yeah. And we, um, we, have, we have two more now that we're going to trick into coming down to Savannah for a year or two. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Which which uh, they may not mind right now, if, or at least maybe in a couple of months, because uh, because they're from the great state of Minnesota and Minnesota gets a little bit colder than uh than Savannah. So uh, uh, we'd love to have you guys down. So uh, let me go ahead and introduce that we've got Jake Zimmerman and Jen Zimmerman. Uh, and you might guess that they're related, uh, that they're married, but with two different law firms. Um, so let me go ahead and uh, and first welcome you guys. So welcome, Jake and Jen. Thanks. Thank you. Um, but Jake, I'll start with you. Uh, so Jake is a uh, is a, the founder and partner in the Zimmerman Law Firm uh, up in St. Paul, uh, Minnesota, I believe, and um, and uh, is just a fantastic trial lawyer. And we're going to be talking about a really fantastic case today. But uh, but Jake uh, has been selected as the 2019 and 2021 Attorney of the Year by the Minnesota Lawyer. Uh, magazine. He was also a finalist for Trial Lawyer of the Year by Public Justice uh, and uh, has just uh, had some great results uh, doing great work and is a graduate of the University of Minnesota Law School. So uh, so welcome, Jake. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Of course. And then Jen. Uh, Jen is a partner in the Meshbesher and Spence uh, Law Firm based out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. And Jen has... Uh, uh, had done a ton of work on the multi-district litigation, been involved in a, uh, a, a lot of the uh, uh, HIP litigation, especially with uh, Bear Hugger, Stryker, Smith & Nephew, as well as uh, also involved in the uh, 3M earplug uh, litigation and is the uh, past president of the Minnesota Association for Justice. Uh, and then I, I noticed, uh, Jen, I thought it was really uh, fascinating. So uh, you spent... Uh, a, over a year, it sounds like, uh, essentially doing pro bono work for uh, the survivors and families of the I-35 uh, West Bridge collapse back in um, uh, 2007 to 2009, sometime around that time period. Yeah, that's right. The uh, The trial lawyers in Minnesota, sort of when that bridge fell down, it happened to be about um, two weeks before our annual conference. And I think uh, anytime there's a tragedy Lots of us are looking around for ways that we can help. And we all got together and we thought, look, you know, we could donate blood. You can do some other things, but we could instead donate our experience. Yeah. And um, and so what we did over the course of uh, just about exactly two years was we sort of identified um, potential hurdles, including uh, sovereign immunity and caps. Um, we, we did some sort of back of the envelope uh, calculations on, on what kind of damages there were. There were 13 people that died, uh, over 100 people that were hurt on the bridge that day. 
And, and so then we went about the process of lobbying for a special victims compensation fund. Um, we got that uh, legislation passed. We administered those claims through that uh, process uh, for the claims that the, the injured people had against the state. And then after that, we actually litigated against two private entities that were responsible for both evaluating and making recommendations about um, uh, inspections and, and repairs to the bridge. And so ultimately, in the span of about two years, we recovered over $75 million for the people that were hurt on that. Um, wow. And we did it all for free. That is great work. I mean, great work. And and uh, and I remember when that tragedy happened, because at least down in, in my area of Georgia, uh, they, everybody started looking at the bridges and, uh, and we actually had several, uh, new bridges come out of it because, uh, they realized that we had several bridges that weren't up to spec. Um, but that's, that's just really, uh, really fantastic work. I, now I'm, I, we were just talking, uh, before we got on about my ignorance when it comes to Twitter and, and everything that's happening in that world. And I know Yvonne and Jen have been, have been, uh, talking a lot about that, but, um, I also, when I was reading, um, your bio, Jen, there was a couple of other things that I'll, I'll just admit that I'm, uh, ignorant about when you tell, when you say that you like to teach your kids to, uh, shovel class five and swing a hammer, what are, what are we talking about? So class five is a type of gravel. Um, we have, okay. we've lived in two sort of very old houses um, uh. over the last 15 years, and we've done a shocking amount of the home improvement projects ourselves. So our kids know how to, um, you know, you can't use a stud, a stud detector because those are always terrible, right. but they know how to, they know how to pull their weight. Nice. Um, so I'd like to hang up my, uh, my hammer and my tool belt at this point and, <laughs> and hire in people to, to do a better job than we have, but we've done all right. Nice, nice. Uh, well, that's good. Steve, I yes. feel like I also need to bring up the most important fact about both Zimmermans, which is the Halloween game is very strong at the Zimmerman house. Um, I don't I don't know if, we're, if we can maybe like this episode is going to post in like January. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so it won't be super uh, seasonal, but the most amazing Halloween decorations I've ever seen. I have to hear this because it's I can tell you that the Halloween uh, uh, decorations at the Lowry house, we usually take it pretty seriously and my my daughters get uh, heavily involved in it. So I'd love to hear what the, what happens at the Zimmerman house on Halloween. Well, we um, we have this house. It's actually 100 years old now uh, in an older part of St. Paul. And um, when we first moved in just about five years ago, we had all these boxes um, and we use the boxes to make teeth and eyes. Uh, so the windows <laughs> in our master bathroom turn into these sort of red lit up eyes. We have um, light bulbs behind them. And then the the like entryway to the house has teeth in it. So it looks like the house is going to eat somebody. It was nice. so cool. <laughs> it's really cool. Pictures. It's yeah. pretty yeah. fun. It's my favorite holiday. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's it's definitely our favorite ho holiday. And we we love to uh, not only do we love to decorate all the you know total outside of the house, but then after we're done, uh, my daughters and I like to, you know, plant uh, like some of the dummies or some of the different uh, monsters around the house just so that we can scare each other as we're walking <laughs> into a room. Yeah, we um, still have ours sitting in a room right, downstairs. Right, there's right. A, yeah, a, yeah, exactly. You know, a skeleton in the library. Because <laughs> I, why not? I had why a uh, my my wife was getting on me about cleaning up the uh, cleaning up the uh, Halloween uh, stuff, and so I took I had a dummy of Michael Myers, and I just set him at our dinner dinner room uh, dining room table. And as she walked in uh, in the middle of one day, it saw some guy sitting there with a mask on. So she got oh, yeah. freaked out. She was not happy with me. She doesn't yeah. find it as funny as we do. So <laughs> it's objectively hilarious. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, all right. Well, let's talk about this case. And I know we're having fun, but this case. Uh, that, that, no, that's uh, it. Episode's over. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this this case that we're talking about is a very serious case and really a groundbreaking breaking case. 
um, uh, for what, what has happened. But um, first of all, let me just tell you, the name of the case was Leonard uh, Posner versus James Fetzer. And this was really, and correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but this was really sort of the first uh, of cases to go to trial involving um, the uh, Sandy Hook Elementary uh, massacre and and then all of the um, sort of uh, conspiracy theory and and um, uh, that came out of it and essentially uh, claiming that it never happened, claiming that that people were faking what happened. From what I know, th this case was tried back in uh, October of 2019. I think probably a lot of people who listen to the show are familiar with the uh, more recent verdicts inv involving Alex Jones and Infowars. Um, one was a $49 million verdict in Texas, and another was a $965 million verdict in Connecticut. But really, um, the Posner versus Fetzer case was one of the first uh, and I'm just going to give a brief overview and, and then you guys correct me where I've, where I've messed up, uh, as usual, but, um, but this was a defamation case, uh, Larry, uh, Lynn, I keep wanting to say Larry, uh, Lenny Posner was the father of Noah Posner, uh, who was six years old and murdered at Sandy Hook Elementary School on December 14, 2012. Of course, that, uh, uh, you know, uh, is a tragedy that, um, you know, had just tremendous effect on Lenny and his family. Um, but then it was made even worse, much worse, um, by the sort of salt in the wound of uh, conspiracy theorists. And in this case, it was a, a professor uh, by the name of James Fetzer, along with uh, some other people, uh, who published a book called Nobody Died at Sandy Hook. It was a FEMA drill to promote gun control. Uh, and then that uh, book essentially spread the uh, rumor um, that this that Sandy Hook was uh, all fake uh, and never really happened. I think he even claimed that Noah Posner was not a real person and that the death certificate uh, that um, had been put out that that, that uh, Lenny Posner had put out to you know sort of quell you know any sort of rumors uh, was forged and faked. And um, and so this was a um, a defamation case uh, against uh, um, James Fetzer uh, for spreading this lie, uh, and it resulted in a uh, $450,000 verdict uh, in Wisconsin, in uh, Dane County, Wisconsin, uh, back in October of 2019. And there's a lot to talk about there, um, but uh, just, you know, a tremendous case uh, just uh, tragic facts. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know how to feel about people who do what uh, Alex Jones and James Fetzer and people like that do when you have this kind of tragedy where a parent goes through the worst thing that a parent can imagine um, is losing a child and losing a child th this way. And then, uh, you know, basically going to the world and telling them that it's all false and that uh, that everything was uh, forged. And I noticed the, uh, the one thing I thought was really, I mean, they were completely unapologetic it sounds like throughout the trial and even during one of the the he the hearing on the motion for summary judgment uh i think uh professor fetzer called your client a cyber terrorist is what i saw um that he was that that uh that mr uh, posner was was somehow the terrorist that was uh that was um going after all these people just trying to uncover the truth so um uh, just a um just a, a extremely important case and and great work but um 
But, you know, kind of the, what I was thinking of is, is first of all, is how, uh, uh, Jake and, and, and Jen, did you get involved in, in that case or in, involved in, in, you know, sort of the middle of, of what happened at, at Sandy Hook and these, you know, conspiracy theorists? Well, so let me say first that you're right about the fact that ours was the first case to go to trial, but we were not the first case to, to start this process. Uh, our friends down in Texas filed a case against Alex Jones and Infowars, and this case really came out of that. Okay. Uh, to the extent you watched that trial uh, in Austin, James Fetzer's name came up a lot. He was one of the people that fed conspiracy theories to Alex Jones, who then broadcast them around the world. And as a result, those lawyers asked us, uh, Mr. Posner asked us, if we would help by going after James Fetzer uh, in his hometown in Wisconsin, uh, largely because we're in Minnesota and there's geographical proximity. Yeah. Um, so we did. You know, Genevieve and I have kids around the same age as Noah Posner was. We remember that day, you know, very specifically. Um, and it seemed like the right thing to do. You know, here you have these parents who suffered the worst tragedy you can imagine as a parent. And then they're hounded for years afterwards, just unrelentingly hounded for years by these people who um, can't see the truth, can't see reality, or are willfully blind to the reality that these parents live. So we got involved um, basically as a, a, as a way of doing justice on behalf of the families uh, and through friends of ours who are fantastic trial lawyers and, and really took the lead on this effort. Um, by filing the cases down in Texas. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I feel like you were probably prepared for, but in in reading the materials that you all had sent us to get ready to talk about the episode today, I, I imagine that not only is this really sort of obvi obviously emotional um, subject matter to deal with, but then on the top of that, you were dealing with um, defendants who were pro se for a lot of the time. And in it, Steve mentioned the motion for summary judgment hearing in reading that transcript. I can't imagine how frustrating it must have been for you to litigate against somebody who was pro se and, and given the leeway that a lot of times those those folks get from courts to to avoid sort of depriving them of rights or whatever. But the the I, I just can't imagine having to deal with this subject matter. And then on top of that, having to have the patience to deal with somebody who was representing themselves. And so not really following the rules that we all follow, even though even when we don't agree on whether some did, somebody did something wrong. There's no doubt. And that was complicated. Uh, it was important for us to make sure that we won this case on the merits, that we would go toe to toe with our defendants, one of whom was represented by counsel. Um, and win on the merits on the substance of the case so that we could try to help put this all to bed. Um, but it was an emotional case, there's no doubt. Genevieve and I both cried at various times during this case. Um, you, you, you can't see it in the transcript, obviously, from trial. Um, but you know, it was an emotional opening and an emotional closing. And there were times during trial that, uh, that there were only two dry eyes in the courtroom, uh, and those belonged to uh, Dr. Fetzer. Right. And right. when did he, so when did he get a lawyer? Um, after he lost on summary judgment, okay, uh, he was able to hire counsel. Okay. So th there's a gap in the middle where the defendants did not have a lawyer. It was post-summary judgment. 
during the summer where really very little was happening in the case. Prior to that time, uh, one of the defendants, who was a corporate entity, was represented by counsel, as it had to be. And so there was at least a lawyer involved mm-hmm. in the case, and he could try to sort of guide them all and, and rein in Dr. Fetzer to the extent that's possible. Um, in addition, they were assisted by lawyers who didn't make an appearance um, and were practicing law without a license, which became an issue in the case and led to some <laughs> yeah. peripheral litigation. Oh, really? Okay. Because I saw the judge mention that in the summary judgment about how if you're in Wisconsin, if you were going to help somebody with a a brief, you have to put in the brief that they've been helped by counsel and that wasn't done. So that led to other uh, litigation? Uh, We reported that individual to the bar in Colorado and she was disbarred. Oh, wow. That's well, good, good work. Good work. Um, well, so let's talk about the actual defamation case. So as, as I take it, the, the specific defamation that we were talking about, that you were talking about in the trial came out of this book and that there were multiple instances in that, in the book, uh, not only in the book, but then in a, they did a, I guess, a second edition of that book that came out later that was maybe more expanded. Um, and in there, specifically mentioned your client, um, Mr. Posner, and mentioned his son, and then mentioned how uh, that this um, uh, death certificate, which you attached to the uh, to the complaint that was filed, uh, was a forgery and a fake. And then I noticed that at part, at least part of the motion for summary judgment, he tried to make the argument, well, I'm not saying that Mr. Posner faked it. I'm just saying it's fake, you know, you know, wherever it came from, but it was pretty clear from the book that he was blaming uh, Mr. Posner for faking it. And, um, but, but so it was specific instances in that book uh, where he was making that claim. And that really became the crux of the case. Is that right? The, uh, the, the death certificate and whether or not that was a real or forged death certificate. That's right. And I'll let Genevieve jump in and talk about this, but it was important to us to make sure strategically in this case, that we identified a narrow instance of defamation so we could streamline the case, um, which is one of the reasons we were able to move so quickly on it. So there was a lot of other stuff in the book that was defamatory to our client and to all of the other parents who lost kids at Sandy Hook, uh, among many, many other people who were peripherally involved in Sandy Hook. We identified that one because it was easy to prove it was false. And I think that one of the things that that was sort of both fun and interesting about this case and, and important was um, to not make the this was a huge problem and a huge issue. But but to try to find um, the right kind of a case, like keep your client's um, interest in mind and in framing your strategy about what you're going to do at trial. Right. So. Um, what Lenny would never have wanted, and and what I, I I can't speak on behalf of all of the the parents for Sandy Hook at all, but what they don't want is to have this issue litigated. Uh, is there really truth to this sort of mm-hmm. completely asinine? Yeah, I mean we say conspiracy theories, but they, they, they're lies. They are provable right. lies, and that's one of the things that that is, in my opinion, that the lawyers and, and the court system really have uh, sort of going for us is that we have an established set of rules where what we do is we go and prove things. And we we have, this is how you do it. You get certified copies of these things. Somebody else can come in with their evidence, but you have to have admissible evidence. And then and then a jury's gonna decide. And, and so what we did was we very intentionally planned a, a way to be successful with the defamation 
um, and, and to do so, hopefully by winning on, uh, on summary judgment on the liability piece, which we did partially because we kept the, 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 the issues really narrow, um, but also to really avoid giving, you know, these, these conspiracy theorists the soapbox they all crave, which is to stand up and say, oh, but there was a green screen and Anderson Cooper this, and it's really a big government conspiracy. I mean, that's a win for the bad guys. Right. And so that's, I think, one of the things that was really important from a trial lawyer's perspective, because, you know, any of us who sort of read about this <laughs> want to get into all of it, right? We're like, you're, you've lost your head. This is not, yeah. this is not true. And there, there is a thing called truth. We recognize maybe there's, you know, there's some um, gray areas in certain things, but not were there children murdered there that day. That's not yeah. a gray area. And so for us to really think about what it was to win for our client was important and not let our sort of egos or, or or other things get in the way of making this into a bigger thing and and sort of unintentionally or, or not thoughtfully providing the defendants the very the very you know soapbox and megaphone that they crave so much. Yvonne, uh, you know that the practice of law since the pandemic has started has completely changed. Completely changed. A lot more pajamas involved for me. Yes, yes, a lot more working from the computer. Yes, and only getting dressed from the uh, from the waist up. But you know who has helped that change and that transition immensely in our practice and can help everybody else in theirs is legal technology services. That's right. I mean, being good at doing things virtually, at doing things through Zoom, through video conference, online, it's more important now than ever. I'll say Zoom or WebEx or whatever you use now, Legal Technology Services has completely changed how they do things in order to get you organized, looking good. Our depositions, our hearings, our mediations have all changed. And a big part of that is because we do them all virtually and we're doing them with the help of Legal Technology Services. So they get our exhibits in order, um, you know, and you call up the exhibits by number. They'll highlight them, they'll enlarge them, they'll do whatever they want. And it actually flows really well. I do have to say, I think my depositions are more organized now than they were before the pandemic because I used to just walk in with like a giant box of documents and then I'd pull out the documents and go through them and uh, now I'm much more organized because of legal technology services. Yeah and I mean LTS I'm gonna I'm gonna call them LTS because we, yes. we're on a first name basis <laughs> you know my favorite thing about them is that we work with them a lot their staff is really highly trained and you can always count on them to represent you well whether they're doing your trial technology when we have in-person trials one day or if they're handling your depositions or they're doing settlement videos, other kinds of videos documenting stuff for you, you can always count on them to conduct themselves well. Clients like them, judges like them, courts like them, lawyers like them. Yeah, the one thing that I have to say is uh, when we're in trial, while I think we do pretty good in front of juries and hopefully they like us, they always like our trial techs, whether it's Bob, Taylor, Quentin, David, Liz, just any one of the people over there, they're all fantastic. And of course, Melanie, who runs the ship over there. But they do more than just exhibits. They do day in the life videos. They do settlement documentaries. They do demonstratives. And everything they do is just excellent. And you can look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I can say that if you call them and tell them that you heard about them on the Great Trials podcast, then you get 10% off of your first service. 
So look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I do want to say, even though they're based in Georgia, they do work nationwide. And they I know they've done trials all over the country. Uh, but look them up at ltsatlanta.com. I didn't really think about that, but because I was thinking about the, you know, that you guys filed for summary judgment on the liability. And and so by the time you went to trial, it was essentially a damages, uh, a damages trial. Um, And I was thinking about that from a strategic standpoint, was part of the reason why you did that just because you did not want to give them like if you hadn't moved for summary judgment, and then went and tried the case where you might be able to inflame a jury because they might just be so mad about what's being claimed. But at the same time, uh, you you know, they're going to be, they may be putting on all kinds of crackpot theorists or, you know, you know, so-called scientists that are going to come in there and try and prove that, that Sandy Hook never happened. Was was that part of the uh, the thought process? That was the crux of the thought process. You're hundred percent right. In fact, going into trial and final pretrial, we still had a punitive damages case um, and decided to drop that because in order to win that punitive damages case, we would have had to get into the defendant's mindset which is a terrifyingly scary place to go. With this <laughs> right. Place I prefer to avoid for the rest of my days. Right, right, <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah. But, but, but it would have also given him the chance to stand up and say, here's why I thought this death certificate was fake. And that opens the door to the entire Sandy Hook um, incident um, and everything that goes along with it. So by yeah. dropping punitives, you know, sure, we don't get as big of a verdict out of it. We didn't get to inflame the jury by... Um, because we kept liability out of the case. But what we were able to do then is to just surgically go in, get a win for our client, and then move on to the next stages. So, you know, we did for the first time in Wisconsin, we were able to get a permanent injunction against further publication of the defamatory speech, which is a big deal. You can do that in Wisconsin, even though it is a prior restraint on speech uh, under the First Amendment. So I, I saw you mention it. So there was two things I, I, I saw both of you interviewed on a, a, a online about this. And, and I saw you mention that, uh, Jake, about the permanent injunction. So I definitely like to hear about that. But I also saw Genevieve, you talked about the um, there was a, a procedure in Wisconsin, I think, where they could appoint a uh, an expert. That, and I think was there a. a what, what type of expert was was appointed and what and t- talk about that a little bit. Absolutely. So I think that, you know, one of the one of the things I would encourage anybody who's listening to this, like we, we used to say this to our kids all the time. We actually still say it. Um, use your powers for good. Uh, trial lawyers can use their powers for good. We all know how to do things. Each case is a little bit different than the last one. But there are things that, you know, from one case that you can carry on to another. And sometimes uh, it may actually be even better if you don't technically know a whole heck of a lot about, you know, defamation law, for example, in this instance. So there's a law in Wisconsin that allows, and it's it's typically, and as far as we know, exclusively used um, in paternity cases where, where the court or, or the state is trying to establish a paternity for child support reasons or whatever it may be. Uh, but that allows the court to appoint an independent expert on DNA uh, to conduct a, and, and do a DNA test and um, and so as we sort of did some research and started thinking about it, we thought, well, look, that might be a really good way to, in addition to the expert we're going to bring in um, on DNA issues, why don't we bring a motion to the court and say, you know, judge, will you please appoint a, a court appointed um, expert on DNA? We'll make sure that the samples get there. The court appointed expert can do this. And that sort of takes out of the, um, the equation, the sort of, you know, 
vitriol that comes from from these these conspiracy theorists, which is you know that somehow Jake and I are funded by George Soros or or you know some other sort of deep left state. Um, and I'm sure that that didn't really, you know, cure any deficiencies to the extent that, uh, that that Fetzer thought that there were some. But we thought it gave us some additional credibility that, look, this isn't even somebody we hired. Um, we brought we, we used the Wisconsin statute. We brought a motion to the court. We said, you please uh, appoint a, an expert in DNA um, evaluation. And that happened and, and concurred with, the, of course, the, the blood work that we had um, and analyzed by our own expert. But I think it's a good example of, you know, look, I don't practice in paternity cases or or anything like that. But as we were sort of doing research, we thought that that was a way to apply that statute um, to to bring additional credibility to the case and the sort of truth that we were seeking here in, in this in this case. So so as far as the DNA testing, were they testing the DNA of, of Noah and uh, Lenny or what, what, what exactly was the expert doing? Yeah, that's exactly right. We were able to go to the medical examiner in Connecticut. They had obtained a sample of um, really cardiac blood from yeah. uh, Lenny's heart during his post-mortem examination. They keep that on a special slide so that years later they can go crack cold cases. Um, yeah. There was no cold case for Sandy Hook, but it's part of their standard operating procedures. So we were able to obtain a portion of that sample and uh, do DNA testing along with samples that were provided by Lenny Posner and his ex-wife, Veronique. Okay. That sort of, that sur surgical strategy that you all had, it makes so much more sense now in reading the, like, I can't, I want to read the, the transcript of the motion for summary judgment hearing again, because there were so many times that that Fetzer at that point unrepresented was piping up and, and going off and all these rants and tangents. And one of the things I was really impressed by was how you all, you know, each time he would say these things, you would go back and you would say, OK, well, you know, that's something that he would need expert testimony for under this, this and this. And he doesn't have that. Or, you know, you kept linking it back to, you know, not not getting caught up in in the substance of what he was saying which i think would be so easy to do you were just very like technical like well in order to say that you need to have evidence that says this this and this um and just keeping it that way so that it was so clean um it, it, it just makes a lot of sense now because to not play that game and not give more of a platform than than you had to well, and the nature of conspiracy theories is they're a little bit like the blob from that old horror movie, right? Mm -hmm. Every time something comes in and looks like it might stop the conspiracy theory, the theory grows and that that issue then becomes part of the theory. So it was important for us to bring things back to an area where the judge would really understand the rules of evidence don't allow you to just say that there's some government document that proves Sandy Hook, you know, was a government operation you're going to have to show that it's admissible evidence. And we just went back to that over and over again. But you're right. It's hard not to chase <laughs> things down the rabbit hole because there, are, there is an answer for every single one of the discrepancies or inconsistencies that these folks think they see. Um, but once you go down there, there's no chance on summary judgment and trial becomes a, a circus. Yeah. I mean, one of the I always write down questions as I'm reading the stuff that I want to ask you guys. And one one of my first questions was, how did you sit there? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sometimes more, more patiently than others. Right. Yeah. Right. 
And not only were you guys, you know, extremely professional in handling, you know, where he was saying some really inflammatory stuff, but the judge was too. I mean, I, I you know, I thought the judge, he was very, he's like, I'm going to give you a chance to say everything you want to say to me uh, before I decide. And uh, I, I, I was really, it would have been hard to sit there and listen to some of the stuff that he was saying. The judge deserves a ton of credit. He was absolutely fantastic. Um, and, and, you know, again, Fetzer was unrepresented at that time. So he really was trying to do everything he could reasonably do to give assistance to a pro se defendant. Um, you know, but there are limits to that, obviously. And the judge was doing that, even though the judge had received communications. I don't know if they amounted to a threat or not, but they were certainly communications that the judge was concerned about, which led ultimately to us doing um, an anonymous jury at trial where none of us knew the names of any jurors. We couldn't do any background research on any jurors. Uh, they only had numbers. And we, we all identified the jurors by solely by the number and nothing else. It's funny you said that because I was looking at the verdict form that you sent. And it just says number 62. And I was like, that that's odd. I've never seen that before. So talk about that procedure a little bit of uh, how you and is that something that is common in Wisconsin? I'm not sure I've ever heard of that uh, here in Georgia. Have you, Yvonne? It, talk, yeah. talk about that a little bit, how, how you pick the jury and, and, and what it's like to try where you, uh, you know, they're all completely anonymous. Well, I well think Genevieve we, led that. So, yeah, you should. She yeah, should we knew what in. maybe we knew, uh, you know, gender, age, if they were married or or uh, single or divorced and what their occupation was. That was it. Um, so it was really a very brief what um, year, which obviously makes trial lawyers uh, nervous because we want right. to know as much as we can. The sort of interesting part, by the way, is um, that was 100 percent at the judges. That was a sua sponte decision. And it was because his or as I understand it, it was because the courts, the clerk's office had been contacted by a number of people that were. Not well, right, um, right. And, and when you when you hear some of the evidence, I mean, we got to play these voicemails that are tr deeply, deeply disturbing because yeah. that's what ended up happening. Right. That 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 these books, I mean, because this is one of a number of conspiracy theory sort of books that that Fesser wrote, um, but but they, you know, once they get a megaphone like Alex Jones provided, then they reach the sort of corners of the internet to people that are, you know, whether knowingly or not, vulnerable or receptive to this in a way that is um, dangerous. I mean, dangerous to, to them, I think, uh, dangerous to our society, absolutely. Um, and, and dangerous to individual people, including, you know, the, the, the well-meaning folks at the court staff. I mean, that they would yeah. have calls and, and questions and, and sort of anonymous threats. And so if the judge is sort of seeing uh, what kind of people are coming out of the woodwork and, and what other folks had have done, um, you know, I think that he he rightly perceived a potential concern on behalf of uh, the, the potential jurors um, and said, look, I've decided that this is going to be an anonymous jury. They're each going to get a number. You can sort of go through the rest of your process. And then there were um, the press was there. But there was essentially an agreement um, uh, with the court, sort of with the court's guidance at the beginning about sort of which way um, and where the camera's uh, focuses, focus could be. Uh, it could not focus on the jury ever. Um, it was not to focus on, on uh, our client, really. Um, so, you know, he was mindful, of, uh, Judge Remington was mindful um, that this was a public court and that there was going to be interest in this, you know, potentially important case. 
um, but then at the same time that there needed to be some protections afforded both to the jurors and, and to folks that, that worked for the court staff. So um, it was very it was very interesting and we knew very little about the folks that um, that ultimately decided this case. Um, but we're appreciative obviously of, of their willingness to, to hear the evidence and, and make a decision that it's a hard case to to be involved with. Yeah, so that that raises in my mind just the, <clears throat> I mean, it's just logistical stuff. I mean, so how was security in the courtroom? And I guess, you know, normally, you know, we all talk about that courtrooms are supposed to be open to the public and, you know, anybody can come sit uh, for the most part and, and listen to a trial if they want to. Uh, how was all that handled? Was the courtroom closed off or or what, what happened no. with that? No, the court was open, um, you know, standard metal detector on the way into the courthouse. The court brought a couple of extra marshals in to the courtroom uh, just to make sure things were, were safe. Um, but interestingly, after hours, the jurors um, rendered their, the jurors came back with a verdict, I think about 8 p.m. And at that time of day, there really is no staff to run security mm -hmm. in the courthouse. So Lenny Posner was not able to be there to hear the verdict come in because there wasn't any security. We couldn't provide anything for his well-being uh, at a time where the likelihood of something happening was was real and substantial. Um, but other than that, you know, the, the courthouse staff did a fantastic time, uh, a fantastic job keeping everything going, keeping it open and making sure that people could come and see this case, whether it was members of the press or uh, there were certainly some other conspiracy theorists uh, out there in the in the gallery. Yeah, yeah. So I, I wanted to go back, Jake, for one second and talk about this uh, this injunction, the permanent injunction you were able to get. With I guess first question is that something that came out after the jury verdict, and then I, I know that there was another part of the case where uh, essentially um, uh, Professor Fetzer had um, leaked some confidential stuff to the public. Uh, and there might have been a, 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 a contempt order on that. I, I, I'm not sure. But has he complied with it? And I guess, you know, it, um, how are you? Are you all sort of uh, vigilantly watching him and is making sure he's complying with it? So two parts on the yeah. permanent injunction. We asked for it in the complaint. It was achieved through post-trial motion um, and, and granted by the court and not appealed by Fetzer. Um, there were actually two contempt orders in this case. The first time, Dr. Fetzer leaked uh, Lenny Posner's deposition video, which is a big deal because Mr. Posner has taken great pains to keep his face uh, out of the public eye. Um, this is a guy who's had to move, you know, at that time he had moved seven times to avoid conspiracy theorists showing up at his house. Um, and you know, since that time has had to move uh, at least once or twice again. So uh, it was important to us to try to keep that stuff quiet, uh, keep the focus off of him, as Genevieve mentioned. Um, but Dr. Fetzer leaked his video deposition transcript to other conspiracy theorists who have continued to let that circulate. The court's power is somewhat limited in what he can do to Dr. Fetzer for doing that. But he went ahead and did it again with the deposition transcript uh, just two weeks after the first contempt finding. So first contempt finding was a jail threat. Second one ended up with a monetary fine um, and increased the verdict or the judgment to 1.1 million. Okay. Okay. And 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 I, I thought I saw somewhere that, so he appealed that all the way up or tried to appeal it all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court and he got denied every step of the way. So 
I guess what you want to let uh, our listeners know how it's going on trying to collect. <laughs> so there have been some interesting efforts and we've done right. some unique things with collections as well. Uh, Dr. Fetzer doesn't have any money. Yeah. He lives on social security. He lives in a house that's not worth very much money and drives a car that's not very nice. Um, but he did own copyrights to all of these conspiracy theory books. And we executed judgment on the copyrights as a form of intellectual property. It's transferable. And now those are owned by uh, Lenny Posner. Wow. We also uh, executed judgment on the domain name for Dr. Fetzer's blog. And Mr. Posner owns that now as well. So collecting on a case like this is always a challenge. This case was always going to be more about the important statement of proving that the defamation um, was a lie, proving that the statements were a lie, proving that Lenny's son Noah actually lived and actually died, and that there was no reality to this conspiracy theory, which is a huge challenge. You know, in a conspiracy theory where everything is part of it, we've said many times, you have to find that one spot where you can identify an objective reality. And from there, you can prove the existence of the universe around it. Yeah. We did that by proving that, that Noah Posner was a real boy who really lived and really died. And from there, we could establish all of the other elements we needed to prove our case. So Yvonne, the internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic, and it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online. And you can have all the great verdicts in the world, but if nobody knows about them, then they're not going to come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company like Digital Law Marketing. That's right. It turns out that what you put on the internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this, but now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization, it's really important that your firm's site is is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that Digital Law Marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of. Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into, but it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are and digital law marketing is great at it. Exactly. And you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie yeah. cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done. But they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website, and you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com. Tell them, tell them we sent you. You know, every time you say that, Jake, uh, just as a parent, uh, it, the anger just wells up in me. I mean, to suggest that his son didn't even exist and then you know and that this is all made up i mean i don't know how i don't know how anybody keeps it together through that well i would add that we knew when we decided to get involved this was not a case that that we would ever make a cent on i mean it's negative money right we, we knew that we knew that yeah. that um that fetzer didn't have money that really that we were going to be able to 
obtain. And, you know, as with so many cases that, you know, any of us handle, even if you, even if somebody does have money, it's money, right? You're not bringing somebody back. But so some of the challenges were, you know, what do you do with essentially a, a judgment-proof defendant? D does that mean that they have complete immunity for whatever they say? I mean, I think as a society, we have to say absolutely not. And and if trial lawyers don't stand up to say, all right, I know how to do this. I'm going to jump in and I'm going to say, no, like what you say about somebody matters. You don't get to say that. Um, then, the, you know, we, if people won't get in the ring because they're, you know, maybe they're not going to make a bunch of money. And I get it. We all have yeah. practices and firms we got to support. And um, but but we have to be able to stand up and say, you know, there's a boundary and, and there's some societal norms and there's statutes and. And this is tortious behavior, and we're not going to just say it's fine because you're broke. Yeah. Um, so I think that that that's a, a a really important thing. And then thinking about it from a creative standpoint, right? So again, what's a win for our client versus a win for the defendant? Keep keep Fetzer off of his soapbox. Keep his keep his megaphone away from his mouth, and that meant taking away his website yeah. and taking away his books. Uh, because, you know, maybe it's a little bit of a game of whack-a-mole and these things never really disappear once they're on the internet. But, but he certainly knows, you know, that, that there were lawyers that were prepared to, to hold him accountable for this. And there was a very, very brave client who has been through more than what most people can even fathom. And, and because he was strong and willing to stand up, um, the the burden that that Lenny has lifted throughout this has been sort of unimaginable. I mean, given given what he went through um, and, and just being scared at all all times, but but he's still standing up. And so if he can come into a courtroom where he's afraid that somebody may make good on the on the threats against his life after everything that he's gone through, some lawyers can take take on some cases and 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 see if they can hold somebody responsible, even if even if we're not going to make a bunch of money on the case. So. Yeah. Um, you know, that was an important thing. I mean, I, I think that when we finally got the order um, getting Lenny the, the copyrights and the and the website, it, it was this summer, right, Jake, in July? That's right. It was, it was right around the Alex Jones uh, trial in Austin. And Jake and I went down to watch uh, sort of the end of that trial and closings. Um, and Lenny was talking about what how how meaningful that was to him, because that was that was that was taking the megaphone. That was taking the microphone away from the bad guy. Um, and, you know, sort of like a child who's, you know, been, been reprimanded a bunch of times. Sometimes what they want, I guess, is any intention is good attention. Right. Well, so if we can take away the attention, um, that's a, that's a big win here. Yeah. It must've been difficult for Lenny to, to, because it, it's unfair that in order to kind of do, to follow through with the plan, he had, he had to put a lot of himself out there. Right. I mean, about what he's been through and, and. And, and what he's experienced, it kind of seems unfair because it it feels like it should go without saying. But, you know, he, tr he tries to keep himself out of, you know, keep his face out of the press or keep, you know, keep, have some sense of privacy. But then to do this, he has to kind of put a lot of things out there for, for the for the jury in, in a public courtroom about about his own suffering and obviously himself. I mean, I assume was he there the whole time? Yeah, he was. Um, and just, I mean, how difficult to to relay that story after as many years as it had already been. And, and he had, I think, gone through all the different approaches. You know, for a while, I think he tried to ignore it. Um, you know, eventually then he tried to engage thinking, as most of us would, you know, this person is just sort of like 
lost their way, but I could surely demonstrate to them that they like that this was a real boy. I mean, he had a mm-hmm. twin sister that made it home from school that day. Um, and, you know, to, to go through all of those things and just realize it didn't matter sort of what approach he took. Mm-hmm. You could ignore it. You could engage with it. You could, you know, ultimately the only place he could go was the court of law. And and that's yeah. one of the things that sort of makes this society, um, you know, not perfect, but uh, but it's got some good tools, I guess, for for dealing with this sort of stuff that we never th- thought would take this kind of a role. I mean, and, and then obviously, at least in my view, it has grown significantly with January 6th and sort of all mm-hmm. the other things that um, so much of our society has faced since then. And I, I can't help but think, you know, the, the the lawyers and the rules and the rest of it, you know, hopefully can carry the day with with a lot of this sort of um, deeply troubling behavior. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I, I did want to talk to you, uh, Genevieve, you did reference it um, that, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit about the the trial as far as proving up the damages and, and give you a chance to talk about how you went about doing that. But I mean, you know, some of the stuff that, that, you know, he had gone through um, and may still go through, I don't know, uh, but is getting these, you know, threatening phone calls. And I, you know, I, I heard the one uh, where, a uh, woman leaving a uh, message basically saying, uh, you know, saying some terrible things about Noah, first of all, and then uh, saying, look behind you, uh, it's death, you know, is coming for you or something like that. I can't remember, but just, um, but talk, I, I guess, talk a little bit about, you know, what, what you use to prove up the damages and, and how you prove, uh, prove damages for Leonard, because I, it, I, it was, um the the defense lawyer uh, for uh, Mr. Fetzer, I thought it was interesting because his argument was essentially, at least the way I took his argument, was essentially, you know, he he lost his son and that causes terrible, you know, post traumatic stress disorder, and then and then so the jury, you know, has to decide well how bad how how much is it that he had this defamatory statement made about him about whether or not the the, the certificate um the death certificate was forged and and was basically making it sound like it's going to be really difficult for the jury to you know carve out this little small part compared to losing your son so so talk about how you know you were able to go about and prove up the damages and and put that in front of the jury Sure. So there are two things that we did. One was to rely on an expert witness, a psychiatrist who specializes not just in PTSD, but in what's referred to as a chronic PTSD brought about by a secondary injury. And so we would agree with defense counsel that there was an original injury when, when Noah was murdered and that caused PTSD. But that expert was able to testify that Lenny's PTSD was getting better. He was recovering to the extent you can from the loss of a child. Of course, you don't really ever totally recover, but there is a return to normalcy. And when Lenny was just at a critical time in returning to normalcy, this secondary uh, attack began. And so the psychiatrist was able to document that and show that it was a second injury Um, that caused this chronic PTSD that is essentially not something you can recover from. Uh, We called Lenny to testify, and he testified from the stand about the impact of that original injury a little bit. But a lot of what he talked about was how this mm, spread of 
of defamatory statements and misinformation has made it almost impossible for him to interact with society at large to the point where he could sit down at a bar and talk about having just voted and somebody says, you know, Sandy Hook was fake, you're part of the conspiracy. And so you become guarded and don't know who mm -hmm. you can interact with in a, in a normal human way. Mm -hmm. And he was able to succinctly tell that story. Um, the phone calls came in, sort of surprisingly, to demonstrate that um, it's reasonable for Lenny to believe that people out there are gunning for him, are after him, mm -hmm. because look, he has received these phone calls before. So it's objective evidence to support his subjective concerns. Um, honestly, we were a little surprised that those came in and defense counsel didn't object, but they have their strategy and they're stuck with it. Right. Well, and not for the truth, it was more the impact on the listener, but, but I mean, it, I think it was important. and. So from the very beginning, that that was a challenge, right? How do you, how do you start to tell this story to a jury where they're not going to be like, there's no getting over this first thing where the, these children were all massacred, and and so essentially, you know, what are you doing here? And, and so I guess even even in opening, that's what I tried to say. I said any case is always got a sort of a story to it, and this one has two. The first one you guys probably have all heard about or read about in the newspaper, and that was the tragedy. Um, of the massacre itself, and that this happened, and and undeniably that was a a terrible impact on on our client. Um, but the the second the second story, and the reason that we we've all assembled you here today for a trial, is is to talk about whether or not it's okay, you know, to lie about people, whether whether words matter, whether truth matters, and whether if, if somebody has been terribly harmed by someone else. That that essentially gives you some sort of free pass to to say what you want because there is no sort of more harm that could befall this person, because really that's not true. I mean, Lenny first obviously lost his his child, and as so many of our clients do, you know that that resulted in you know a, a, a divorce and I mean and 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 other sorts of traumas that that frequently accompany that kind of um, difficulty. But but we all represent people who have been through terrible, terrible um, situations and, and loss of family members or children, but they can return to interacting with people at the coffee shop mm -hmm. or, you know, just going to Target or, or, you know, saying hello to somebody. And, and what happened because of this book and, and then the, the, the megaphone that took the book and, and sort of made it a, a bigger deal uh, on a nationwide platform. I mean, this, I think that the testimony in the Alex Jones trial was something between a third and 40% of America think that Sandy Hook didn't happen. Mm. And I don't know if that's really the right number, but <clears> frankly, <throat> if it's 5% or 10% and you're in a line of 10 people at the coffee store, do you ever feel like you can say even hello to somebody? And that's the sort of thing I think that, that Lenny was able to testify to and, and, um, and our experts were able to testify to that, that it, it really, frankly, compounded uh, the the significant issue that he had in that it, it, this whole experience has fundamentally changed every single thing about his world, um, about the country that he lives in and what he believed it was before about, you know, what is it like to have neighbors or not have neighbors anymore because you have to move around because you never know what what, what some stranger is going to come and threaten to do to you or your, your other, you know, kids or family. So, um, you know, I think that by separating those stories out and by saying, look, we understand there is this first thing and it is indescribably terrible. 
Um, but that's not what we're here to talk about. We're not asking you to, to make amends for that death. But what we are saying is that this guy over here can't publish a book and run around and, and tell these lies in a way that that really compounds and hurts our client over and over and over yeah. again. And, and I think the jury um, understood that. Go ahead, everyone. No, you go, Steve. Well, I was just going to say, I was thinking about that when you talk about the the injury that occurs to your client there, because, I mean, nobody can talk about losing a child and how much of an impact that has on a parent because it's the worst thing you can think of. But when you when uh, you know, Mr. Fetzer puts this out on the Internet and, you know, says it in a blog and says it in a book and then says it in an article. I mean, it's like repeated, uh, you know, injury after injury. And then it's multiplied upon itself because now you got all these other people repeating it. And it's like, uh, you know, it, it's just it's not just one injury. It's it is a multitude of injuries that just don't stop. And I'm sure they don't stop even today because there's still a significant part of the country that uh you know believes this alex jones uh james fetzer uh you know lies that they're right. that they're spreading and once you've been in this situation too i mean how and i haven't asked him specifically but how can you be how can you be lenny sitting at home and hear about you know nancy pelosi's husband got attacked with a hammer in their apartment right that that sort of thing is always every time even if it's not you know exactly the sandy hook case it's a reminder that there are unwell people that will do violence yeah. you know they, they they get sort of jazzed up or fired up and pointed a direction by somebody with poor intentions who should know better and 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 bad bad things can happen um so it it's not ever going to stop how much um so so in reading the opening for example you know you all had this strategy where you were avoiding giving the this sort of platform um to Fetzer any more than you had to. Um and I, you know, there's the parts of the opening statement where he is then at that point represented, but he chimes in a couple of times with his lawyer and 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 is sort of admonished by the court afterwards that, you know, you can't speak up, you have a lawyer, you don't interject. Um but I'm wondering throughout the course of the trial how much um of of the substance or the, the of the liability stuff that shouldn't have come in, how much of Fetzer's sort of I, I don't even want to call them beliefs. I don't know what to call them, honestly, but how much of that stuff was he able to interject or try to get in there as a defense before you'd have to, you know, object or something like that? I mean, by the way, the fact that the lawyer the lawyer referred to them as like Sandy Hook researchers, I wanted to like absolutely punch someone <laughs> yeah. no that was that was incredibly offensive and she, we had words in the hallway about it um you know it's you can be a zealous advocate but right. but you don't you don't go that far come on um, there really yeah th there really wasn't much that came in and, and honestly at that point we weren't worried about it at some point part of our strategy was to let the jury see who dr fetzer is mm -hmm. and you give a guy like that a little bit of rope and he's going to hang himself um we had a strategy for his uh, for his cross. And the lawyer that we asked to do the cross did a fantastic job knowing that he is a bully and was going to, you know, take shots at her in front of the jury. And the jury was going to see it and realize that he's going to be as much of a bully to her in the courtroom as he is to Lenny Posner, you know, out in public. And um, 
I think that strategy worked well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but, you know, really he intended to call witnesses. Um, they included you know, witnesses on their list and had two conspiracy theorists sitting in the courtroom ready to testify. But when it came down to it, when it was their turn to call their witnesses, they rested instead. So, you know, as much as they can talk about not getting a fair shake or First Amendment rights need to be protected, this was never a First Amendment case because they dropped all of the arguments related to the First Amendment. And they have their day in court and they didn't have the, you know, the spine to call their witnesses, which is too bad because we were ready for them and it would have been the greatest cross, um, you know, ever because their witnesses were trolls. So, right. I mean, were you shocked? Did you guys see that coming at all? Well, I mean, these were people that literally talk about, I mean, the stuff you guess you read online, but like, you know, the the Democrats and George Soros and vampire ceremonies, drinking babies' blood. And I mean, written down and these people were in the courtroom and I was going to get to cross them. Right. Please (laughs) call your witness. I cannot wait. So I will say I was personally disappointed. Right. Um, (laughs) That was going to be a great deal of fun, but you know, but again, you know, the, the goal here, much as we all like trying cases, was not to make it into a circus. It was to to get, you know, a, get a, a legal and uh, a legally defensible verdict that says this is not the behavior we're going to tolerate. This is not acceptable. Um, and, and so, I, you know, I guess I'm not. I would have been happy to cross those those folks um, and it would have been <laughs> enjoyable that much like our friends in, in Texas got to do. Um, yeah. But. Um, it was it was probably better uh, for the case that that mm-hmm. that their lawyer, I assume, prevailed upon them that this was a terrible idea. Yeah, right. Yeah, I was thinking that when they when they rested without calling anybody, that sounds like something a lawyer uh, basically says right. we're not calling anybody. You know, what I mean, like, is, is, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, um, well, well, guys, I mean, you know, this has been, uh, first of all, let me just say, uh, you know, how much courage uh, your client yeah. has, how much courage you guys have for taking this on. And you're right. I mean, taking on a case that, you know, uh, you know, down the road is probably not going to, you know, you know, give any money, you know, it's, you know, that's, uh, it, it takes a lot of courage. It takes, um, you know, just, uh, you know, you uh, you make us a little, you know proud to be trial lawyers. So um, we applaud you for that. And uh, this is a, f- a fantastic work. And uh, and I you know only hope that uh, these verdicts that have been happening against Alex Jones and Infowars and even if Mr. Fetzer gets up there again, uh, just keep uh, keep happening. Um, it, 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 is there anything else that uh, that you know, I we haven't had a chance to talk about about uh, Posner or Posner versus Fetzer um, that you all want to make sure that our listeners know about. I think the only thing I think the only thing is to say that anybody can do these right. If you're a litigator, we both came from backgrounds that did not include any defamation, any right. First Amendment work. Um, you know, we know how to learn things when you jump into a new subject area, when you jump into a new products liability case. You're going to learn the subject. Um, and we can do that. So people shouldn't feel constrained to only work in their very narrow areas of law. When the opportunity comes, and there's an opportunity to do what's right for someone who deserves competent representation, jump at the opportunity. Um, and, and as we tell our kids, uh, use your powers for good. Yeah. 
That's great. I love that. Lovely. Use your powers for good. So I, I realized, and, and Yvonne, this is probably because it's been a while since we've done these. I, I did make one mistake at the beginning. I didn't give out the website where you can look up uh, Jake and Genevieve. So uh, I want to make sure that everybody knows that we've been talking to Jake Zimmerman, who you can look up uh, he, with the Zimmerman Law Firm. And his website is Zimmerman-Firm.com. Uh, and then uh, Genevieve Zimmerman is at Meshbesher and Spence in Minneapolis. And you can look her up at Meshbesher.com. And that is M-E-S-H-B-E-S-H-E-R.com. Um Guys, this has been just a uh, a, a really good um, um, way to come back to to doing podcasts that we haven't been doing for a while, and I'm really proud of you guys for doing this case. And uh, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks, thanks for, for having us. It was nice chat with you. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? 